All right, well, good morning. How's everyone doing this morning? got more responses than I expected, so that's good. That's good. So, hey, we're glad you guys are here. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Salem, and um, we're just uh, super thrilled you're here and uh, hoping that um, after church, if I haven't got a chance to meet you, I'd love to love to meet you. I try to say that many Sundays. It really is true. So, I'd love to, to hear your story. I'm a people person. So, um, Hey, uh, this last week, uh, about a week and a half ago, uh, my wife and uh, daughter and I, uh, Nikki and Eden, we got the chance to go with my folks who were here in town, and, and we got the opportunity to go to Shields, um, which I hadn't actually been yet in the craziness of this whole year. I'm like, right, right, wow. The sin of, of me, not you, of me, apparently. Yeah, yeah, so glad that we're on the same page. Um, so, um, but I mean, I've been to Shields before, but not to this one. And so we went and man, it was exciting. And, and Eden, uh, the whole purpose of going was to go on the Ferris wheel, right? So she's three years old and, um, and, uh, and it was awesome. So you, you, know, you pay your little dollar, you get your, your, your uh, wooden coin and, and you, get, you get strapped in and, and boy, was she just, just pumped, like just crazy pumped. And so we start going, right? And then she commentates the whole way around, you know? So it's, it's like, hey, we're going up, we're going up, we're going up. Wow, it's high, it's high. We're going down, we're going down, we're going down. We're going up, we're going up. Wow, it's high, it's high, <laughs> you know? And just over and over, and it was just adorable. And it was super cute. Um, but one thing that I learned in that moment is that life has changed a ton for us in, this, in these last two years. Because when Eden was one years old, it was a very different story. Like what she's excited about and, and ready for, uh, what she longs for is a little different. And so there was a, a moment uh, a couple years ago when we were at uh, like a, a Target, a Walmart or something, and we came out. And uh, there's this like, like, like toy, not toy, mechanical dragon that you could like, like pay uh, coins and ride. And I've used this video before a long time ago, so hopefully you've forgotten it. But it fits perfectly, I think, for the story uh, this morning. So check, check out this video of Eden. <laughs> Awkward silence. Do you like it? Do you like it? She's, she's totally underwhelmed. There's nothing, like, it leaves me wondering, who is this ride for? If it can't make a one-year-old go, woohoo, it should be trash. <laughs> it's an underwhelming ride, and you watch her, and you know, you're kind of just like, gosh, like, goodness, girl, you know? Um, and I think that there's a reason why this ride is so underwhelming. And I kid you not, true story, this ride costs one penny. Who even carries pennies anymore? The only way for me to ever provide this ride for my daughter would be to scour the ground at Walmart to find a penny, you know, to put her on this thing. It's super underwhelming for her, right? And if we were to create, you know, kind of a metaphor out of this, there's this sense that we can, we can, we can turn this and make it spiritual, right? Uh, there's this way in which the people, apart from Jesus, and, and even those who are Jesus, but we long for something more, and we have this expectation about life. 
We have this expectation about life, um, and, uh, and we, we long, it's deeper than just an expectation, we long for something uh, outside of ourselves. So not just inside, we long for something outside of ourselves uh, to come into our life in a, in a way that is so powerful and so transformative, so uh, incredible and so amazing, that in fact it actually exceeds all of the expectations that we maybe had for it. And there's this idea and how this plays out in the gospel and how we think about, you know, the incredible nature of, uh, of the gospel. And what's what Paul has kind of been doing uh, in, in the letter of Ephesians, which we started a couple weeks ago and we're continuing in chapter 2 uh, today, is that what he's doing is that he's writing this letter, which, by the way, if Acts is a record of the church, uh, Ephesians is, is in many ways the letter to the church, Okay? And he's writing this letter to the church and he's helping them understand the, the not one penny version of the gospel. He's talking about a gospel that is full and rich and deep and, and, and painful in ways, but so good and, and exceedingly lavish and extravagant in, in all of its nature. And so he's, he's relaying this to us to help us understand the depth of this. So we're going to paint some dark pictures today so we can contrast and understand um, what God has actually done for us so that we can be fully aware and fully receptive and fully excited about those things. It started back in chapter one um, when uh, it says, you know, Paul says that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, not one, not two, not a handful, not a bag, not a bunch, all of them, every spiritual blessing that we've been given, which is this crazy, rich, awesome opportunity that we have to enter in to the power of this kingdom, right? So every single one of those, and it starts by this fact that we're chosen intimately by the Father, uh, we're redeemed by the Son, and then we're sealed by the Spirit. So um, if you thought your story was uninvolved, guess what? Every single person of the Trinity was intimately involved in your story. It's incredible. It's absolutely mind-boggling and fascinating the more you think about it. It's crazy, crazy good. Um, but it doesn't stop there, right? Paul continues to go on, um, and last week, Pastor Tom opened up uh, and he talked about this prayer, right? So Paul's prayer, and his hope and his prayer is that the people of Ephesus, these Christ followers, would know or come to know uh, this power, the power of God, and it's really the same power, he says, that raised Christ from the dead, which is crazy. And so today then what he's going to do is he's going to go one step deeper and he's going to take us as this deeper dive into the gospel, this deeper dive into God's grace. So I want to read that for you uh, this morning. These are not on the slides. So again, just listen and tune your ear, tune your heart to these words because these are powerful words. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." But God, emphasis, we'll talk about that later, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. 
so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I'm going to stop there. Stop there for a moment. Okay, so you start, you start you're hearing this, and there's some really good things in there, some really and truly incredible, amazing things, but it starts with some things that are not so good, not so fun. All right, um, and it leaves you kind of in this place where you're like, I don't, I don't like those words. Right, um, And in fact, we actually we get these glimpses of hope when we read it, and it says, like, you once walked, you were dead, you formerly. And so there's this tendency, I think, for us as Christians sometimes to read this passage and go, ugh, I don't want to deal with the gross stuff. So let's skip that and let's go right to the good stuff. You know, let's go right to the good stuff. Let's, let's move past this. But you can't. Don't, I, don't do that. Well, you can, but don't. Don't do that. And here's why. Because the gospel's goodness is most good because of the bad. And so the more we understand this dark portrait that Paul is going to paint for people apart from Christ, the more we understand how good those who are in Christ actually have it. Okay? So verse 1, he starts with these three words, uh, or four, and I'm going to say, and you were dead. Dead's not a fun word. It's already we're on the bad path, right? Um, if you remember um, the story, um, how, the, how the story of the Bible started. So you go all the way back to Genesis, right? Uh, and you've got God who's created everything and he's still kind of waiting. He wants the, the pinnacle and there all of a sudden man, he wants to create man. And so what does he do? He, he builds man or creates man out of the ground. So it's like God like, you know, somehow bent down and scooped down and, and out of this, this dirt or ground, he formed and shaped a living, breathing, flesh and blood being. How crazy is that? I mean, it's cool, right? That's how it worked. The ground, the word for ground in Hebrew is the word Adama, okay? Um, Adama. And from that, God creates who? Adam. So he gets the name even from the thing that he created him from, right? And so as the story goes, you've got Adam, and then Eve is brought into the world, right, with a rib. And together, as they're in this garden, uh, they make a, a big no-no, right? And it's just, it's, they, they turn for the worse, the rest of humanity, for the rest of mankind. Um, and it's by eating of the fruit and being disobedient to what God says, is that something inside of them shifts. And so if their nature before, being created in the image of God, was to be totally selfless, as a result of sin, now my nature is to be totally selfish. Everything that I do, even when I think I'm doing it for others, is really about me. It's selfish. It's this total twist. And so what happens as a result of this is that what God says to Adam is he says that from the dust you came, guess where you will go? Back to the dust. You came from dirt. Adam came from Adama, and to Adama you will return. And that's what happens. This is the life cycle of every single human being. And it's an uncomfortable reality for us to talk about these things because death is opposite of life. And everything that we love about life is the fact that it's, I mean, it's based on the existence of life. And death is void of that. And so it's this painful, dark reality that you were dead, right? 
There is none of that. And it forces us, when we think about death, it forces us to think um, about what we've kind of accomplished in life, right? We're fearful of the unknown. We start thinking about uh, the loved ones that we're going to leave behind. We start thinking about the, the people that we have been in close contact with, the way that we've treated them. Did, we treat, did I treat them well? What's my legacy? How will people remember me? Did I accomplish in life what I always hoped that I would accomplish, right? There's all these things uh, that, that force us to wrestle with this. And so for many people, it's an uncomfortable word, death is, because it expresses an uncomfortable reality. Because it's the next phase, it's the end phase of the inevitable cycle of life. And what, what Paul says to us is he says that you're dead. You were dead, right? But it's not, he doesn't say, I mean, you could, I mean, you could just imagine like the Ephesians saying like, but, but Paul, we're alive. Well, he's not talking about physical bodies. He's talking about the spiritual body, okay? And so when, when he's doing this, he's saying that you are dead, and he, he clarifies why we're dead in our trespasses and our sins. And trespasses is like this, this, these singular acts, you know, when I say something snarky to somebody. Uh, but this idea of sins is much more comprehensive. It's, it's big. It's, it's all-encompassing of my sinful nature and everything else that I do. So it's like there's no escaping. And we would be better to realize right now, if you, not, if you do not realize this, we'd be better off right now to understand that there's no getting away from sin. Sin underlays every single thought, every single action, every single word that comes out of your mouth. Sin is at the center of it. And it's about selfishness. It's about what I want and what's best for me. And we are in, whether we know it or not, in a deliberate rebellion against God. Okay, that's how, that's how stark this is. It's, it's a powerful reality. You are confronting and going against God in everything that he wants, in all of his holiness, and all of his righteousness. You're like, nope, that's not for me. I'm the total opposite. That's what it is. That's the paint. This is the picture that he's painting. And he says, though, that these are things that we once walked and how we walked. So there's this attitude in how we walk. And he says that we follow two different things. We follow uh, the pattern of the world and we follow um, the prince of the power of the air, which is a kind of a phrase for Satan. So this first one, we follow the, the pattern. If we were to be really honest about ourselves, we um, would probably acknowledge um, that there are some pretty strong cultural systems in place that are not good for us. Right, that we use to our advantage, that are very powerful. They hold a very power um, over our lives. Um, we think about the way that we give in to the ideas of the house that we have, the car that we drive, the clothes that we wear, um, the job that I have, the diploma that I have, right? All those types of things. But it's also, there's an attitude, there's a cultural attitude that we take on, right? There's an industry of sex and pornography, right? All of these things that are moving in the world, these cultural systems that are in play, that if we're honest, we would say that has a pretty strong hold in my life. And they're not all bad, but they have a pretty strong hold in our life. I was talking to somebody this week, and, and they said this. It was just crazy. He said, um, he said, there's some pretty sick things in the world. And it's crazy how quickly, once I entered in, it, it snared me and wrapped me up. 
It really is true. It's very powerful, these cultural norms uh, that, that we give into. But the other one is also Satan, right? It's, he's labeled here as the prince of the power of the air. So this label of prince is the idea of a ruler. And so we, just so we're clear, Satan has every opportunity. He has the right to act in this world because this is his realm. This is his, this is his kingdom. And so we talked the last couple of weeks about these kingdoms that are overlapping and how God ultimately is uniting all things together in Christ, both the physical and the spiritual. But here in this space, right, Jesus' kingdom is, is, is entering into and conflicting with the kingdom of Satan. And so there's much conflict between these two people and how this is going to work as these overlap. And so there's the space, as Paul just describes it. There's this space in the air um, where, where things are happening. And so the original audience, the people of Ephesus, would have known that, or at least the way they thought of this, is that the space between the ground and the moon, okay, all of that air, especially the air that's closer to the ground, this what they would call lower air, like this, this air like right around here is where they believe this is the space, this is the realm where evil spirits and demons exist. And so this is their area of influence. This is where they are is in this air type of space. And so if you, if you think about it that way, you begin to conceptualize the sphere, right, of the earth in this direction, in that direction. You think about the amount of air in this massive space in which Satan and his forces have the opportunity to work. It's pretty big. So however you process that, it forces you to rethink the idea of Satan and his, and his influences differently. And it says it's the same spirit that's now actually at work in the sons of disobedience. So what does he mean by that? Well, this, the, the idea of spirit is this idea, this internal, this inward place, reality of where I feel, think, and have uh, my volition and will. And so what Paul is setting up for us as authors, or as the author, for us to readers, he's talking about the, the world concepts, these cultural constructs, these cultural norms. You have Satan, but then you have inside of each person, you have this deep like tendril that's reaching down inside of you. Uh, that just clings and controls and influences. This is, what, this is what Satan's power has the ability to do apart from Christ. And so we see there's this deep-seated grip on the world. It's this dark picture, and we're not even done yet. There's a reason why Peter describes Satan as a lion who's roaming around looking for someone to devour. This is who he is, and this is his kingdom, and this is where he works. Jesus, by the way, had many, if you're like, you're one of those people who are like, man, Satan, we just don't experience Satan uh, in the same way maybe here as other parts in the world. But that might be true, and I still, this is not, <laughs> this is no Bible thing, but I still love this quote from a long time ago that said, the greatest lie that the devil ever told was convincing the world he didn't exist because he works differently here and then in many other places. And Jesus had very many, he had tons of interactions uh, with demons, very real type of a thing, right? All you have to do is read the Gospel of Mark uh, and you can see conflict, conflict, conflict between Jesus and demons. In fact, one of the most popular, uh, one of the most popular ones uh, is when Jesus, um, we'll throw up this picture, 
Jesus decided to go uh, from the left side uh, of the Sea of Galilee, which is the west side, to the east side. So here we are on the northwest corner of the Sea uh, of Galilee. And, and off there, across uh, that big body of water, are these big hills or mountains. Those are called the Golan Heights, okay? Uh, and the reason why it's significant is because if you were to follow the Jordan River straight through there, uh, it creates this dividing line between west and east. And on the west are the Jewish people, and on the east are all the not-Jewish people. It's, the, it's the, um, the Gentiles, right? These people who, who eat pig, ooh, gross, right? Like, unclean, all these things. Like, that's bad. So they would never go there. No good Jew would ever go there. And Jesus, in his, all of the brilliance of his disciple-making strategies, I love this, right? I keep, keep disciple-making plugs in these things, right? He takes his disciples and he goes to the one place they would never go. And he says, follow me. <laughs> Because this is where we're going, and these are the type of people that I want you to reach. That's what he's trying to multiply. But when he gets there, there's this demoniac, and he's identified as a guy named Legion because inside of him are many, many, many demons. So, uh, and what we find, and this, is, this is so cool, is that despite all of their power, despite the realm in which they have activity uh, under their ruler Satan, they want nothing to do with Jesus. Right? Jesus enters into the scene, they're like, please no. Please no. And so they come to this agreement, for whatever reason, we don't know why, but Jesus sends them into a herd of pigs, and down those very hills would have, boo, doo, 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 doo. this herd of pigs. Do you ever think like how funny that would actually be to watch? I mean, those poor, poor creatures, I'm sorry. But, but you know, like this massive herd kicking up dust, going down, and then you have all the people on the side going, dude, what'd you, what'd you do? You just, that's, that's, my, that's my flock. They're all gone. And so they kick Jesus out, right? That's what he does. But Jesus has these conflicts. And what we find, right, is that as these kingdoms overlap, you have the darkness, which is Satan's kingdom, uh, and then you have Jesus' kingdom, which is light. And, and the darkness cannot overcome the light. So as soon as Jesus' kingdom begins to enter in, right, all of a sudden things become clear. And there's this natural conflict that happens. So Jesus is bigger than that. But the reality is, is that for most people, they're walking in the darkness. They don't know any better. They just don't. They're just doing life the way that they want to do because it's what's inside of them. It's the only thing they know how to do. It's what they're inclined to do, right? In fact, the text says that all we do is we live out the passions and the desires of our mind just over and over and over. And you say that, that sounds, in some sense, that sounds really appealing. But let me tell you, it's not because it's circular. All it does is go around and around and around and around and around over and over and over again with no hope, right? It never satisfies, it just keeps going. They're walking in circles. And because of that, these are people who are naturally now under the wrath of God. And what Paul is doing, and we need to understand this so clearly, what Paul is doing is he's painting an incredibly dark picture for what it means to be apart from Christ for the unsaved person. In some sense, these first three verses, Paul is taking a canvas and he's grabbing a paintbrush with black paint. What's gonna be next? Black paint, over and over and over. And what you get is this canvas. You say, where's the color? That's the point, there is none. It's black, it's dark, it's bleak. 
and it's beyond you. That is what it means to be apart from Christ. That's the destiny for anyone apart from Jesus. It's painful. And that should shock us in some sense because it forces us and sobers us into reality to say, that's my story. That was my story. There's nothing that I had. But it also should shock us because that's also billions of people's stories today. It's thousands of people's stories in Fargo-Moorhead. It's black. People's walking in circles over and over and over. And this is where the story changes, right? This is incredible, okay? Get this, verse 4. We change, change our attitude here because God decides he's going to interject and he's going to um, push his favor into the, into the story. He's going to act on behalf of this gross, sinful, selfish people, right? It says, but God. Those might be the two most powerful words in all scripture. Because he says, look at this painting. There's no hope. There's nothing. But God is going to choose to act on your behalf. That's what's going to happen here. But God, he's going to tell us three things. But before we get there, he's, it's like Paul is trying to remind us. Let me just remind you. But God, this is how cool he is. He's rich in mercy. And because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when... Do you see how amazing that is? Scarcely will somebody die for an unrighteous person, for a righteous person, but let alone for an unrighteous person, right? Like, we're totally dead. No qualities, nothing good. And God says, I'm, I'm, I'm all in. I'm all in. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, here's the three things he did. He made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with him, and he seated us with him. Right? The three things. Do not miss these things. The first one, right? Made alive. Do you remember this story um, uh, from Jesus as Jesus is uh, talking to this guy named Nicodemus? And Nicodemus, and they're having this conversation. And Jesus mentions in this convo, um, he says, You need to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, What? I I mean, I think Jesus, you're a pretty smart guy. If you know how the human body works, that's not how it works. And Jesus, what he's talking about here is this spiritual regeneration. It's not physical. It's this idea that something has to come from the outside, this outside acting agent, and then come inside and totally transform, rewire, renew, make fresh your being for you. It's regeneration. Right? It's crazy how God, who looks at us in all of the bleakness, still says, I'm going to make you alive. I'm going to make you alive. But it's not just that. He also says he raises us up. Right? And we think about the resurrection. We think about Jesus. Uh, check out this picture. Um, this is not um, Jesus' actual tomb. But here's what I want you to picture and think and just put in your mind's eye because this, this flat wall, what it would have looked like is there's this flat wall and there's this little kind of pathway, this little stone pathway that they would have rolled this massive flat rolling stone. And then once your body goes into the tomb, right, people already know you're dead. But when that thing shuts, there's no coming out because it's thousands of pounds. 
You're gone. You're done. It's permanent. It's final. Nope. Guess not. Because the stone rolls away, Jesus comes out. Same thing for you and me. It's hard for us to imagine because we are in alive, in living physical bodies, and we're not, we don't have dead physical bodies in that sense. So it's hard for us to picture. And it's somewhat ingraspable, but this is true. This is what God does for you. It's crazy what God does for us. And the last thing he does is he seats us in the heavenly places, right? He gives you a permanent home, a future, eternal life. It's crazy. The goodness here that is expressed in contrast to the dark, bleak, gross picture. And what I love about all these verses, you can put up these other verses. Um, what I love about these is that every single one of these, these words that we just talked about, they're all classified or clarified with the words in him or with him. The only reason that we are made alive, we are raised up, or we are seated with him is because of Christ. That's it, with Christ. And if you wanna reframe this in your mind, think about it this way. Every single thing that, that God did for Jesus, he did for you. It's pretty awesome. So let's push pause for a second because I want to get practical because let's just imagine that you leave church today and wherever you go, you go out to eat, you go home, you go watch football, you run into a neighbor outside the apartment, um, whoever it is, but somebody stops you and says, hey, could you tell me about Jesus? What would your story be? What would your story be? Because sometimes the story that I hear is something like this. Well, you know, it's, it's a good question. I was raised in the church. You know, one day at camp, I get, there was an invitation, and I received Jesus as my personal Savior, and, you know, um, haven't really done a lot of big, major, sinful things. I still go to church, you know, um, and it kind of trickles off. You hear that story a lot. And I picture in my mind this contrast with Paul because it's almost like in this moment, what you, what you want to say to these people is like, you know what? My story's not that great. I don't have a very powerful story. I don't have all these big major addictions or I don't have these big major things that God, but I'm, yeah, my story's okay. It's all right. But you know who you should talk to? You should talk to Paul. Paul wrote this crazy letter to the Ephesians, guess what? His story, whoo, let me tell you. Paul was a persecutor of the church. He hated the church. Ooh, just hated them. He even condoned death, the stoning of Stephen. It was crazy. Guess what? Then one day, he's just walking on the road. Jesus shows up. Whoa, he goes blind. He goes to the town, and later on, these scales fall from his eyes, and everything's different. You know who you should talk to? You should talk to Paul. His story is incredible. It's so good. It's so amazing. It's so good. What about my story? What about your story? I want to I wanna just hit pause. Because your story is just as powerful as Paul's. You say, but, but, but Seth, I don't have the same types of sin. I didn't condone anybody to death. I, didn't, I wasn't there. I didn't do anything. Yeah, your sin is, is nuanced differently, but guess what? Your rebellion and your, your sin was equally strong just in different ways as Paul was. 
And it's not about the sin anyways. It's about the sinful state. It's this eternal chasm that exists between you and God. And you're concerned about these little sins? There's nothing that can cross that except for Jesus. Your story starts in the exact same place as Paul. So if you leave this place today, I want you to hear, embrace your story, own it. Because it is the, the most powerful tool that you have where you live and where you work and where you play. It's so big what God has done in your life. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive. It's awesome. It's so good. I love, 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 love that story. And it's this result of what God has done in our lives that you and I, we can walk with purpose. Check this out in verse 8. There's the summary of the gospel here. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Stop there for a second, okay? Just so we understand the gospel, right? It's, it's a gift of God. It's totally undeserved. It's given freely to you, except it was a deep, deep, deep cost to Jesus. So don't miss that you can receive it and you can have it by faith alone just by believing that can be your story and it has nothing to do with you you don't boast in yourself at all you can boast for jesus for days but don't boast about you because there's nothing in you that made that work because you're spiritually dead you're made alive was entirely an act of god's goodness and so here's my question Talking about walking with purpose, what happens if we read verses one through nine and that's the only gospel that we have? What happens if we stop in verse nine? Because there's still a verse 10 and we're not there yet, but what happens? Let's come, let's come check this out because I want to I illustrate this for us. I think this is, this is helpful. Inside of this circle, this is God's space. Right? This is where God resides, uh, whatever that looks like, and it's in this space that God is holy. Right? He is set apart. He's separated from sins. Uh, and outside of this circle, guess what? This is where everybody else lives. This is their wrong. This is, their, this is the domain of darkness out here. No good. Bad place to be. Okay? This is all of these people. This is where we were. Right? But God, who is holy and who wants people, his creation, though they're marred with sin and broken and depraved and all of that stuff and gloriously selfish for themselves, still said, I want to act on their behalf and I want to bring those people in here and I want to make them holy. That's his role. That's what he says. I want to do that. I want to make them holy. So what do we do? We go to the people. So he breaks out of this space and he goes to the people, right? But I want us to think about this because when we think about the gospel, these are the words that oftentimes come to the forefront and there's more, but we'll talk about that, right? The first word is this, is death. Jesus had to die, right? Because without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. So he had to die on our behalf. What follows that death? Well, there's this burial, right? He needs to go into the ground, but then we know the story continues. It doesn't end there, right? It's crazy. It's awesome. Then what happens? 
He's resurrected. That's a long word. I'm going to put period. Okay? He's resurrected. And so what we do is we look at this and we oftentimes summarize the gospel with these three words. You know what this is? This is Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. And so these are important, key, integral parts of the gospel, and we oftentimes see them in baptism. When somebody is baptized, you see, we we go down, we take them, we talk about putting them in the water, then bringing them back up to new life, right? So these are very important, and it's because of these things that it provides an open door for us to enter back into the space. So good things, but this is a truncated or reduced version of the gospel, Oftentimes we miss the birth of Jesus, right? We talk about the birth, uh, Christmas time, you know, Emmanuel, God with us, all of that stuff, right? We do that. But when we don't talk about the birth of Jesus in the gospel, in our full version of the gospel, guess what we miss? We miss the start of the story. You know what the start of the story is? It starts with God's mission to send Jesus to us. So we can miss that. Another piece that we can miss in the truncated version of the gospel is Jesus' life. Sometimes we talk about Jesus' life and we'll say, right, that he needed to be perfect in order to atone for sins. So that's why his life. But if we leave this part out of the gospel, guess what? We also miss the very person and the lifestyle that you and I are meant to be conformed to. So if that's not part of our gospel, then my lifestyle doesn't really matter. And the last thing is the idea of the ascension. And we never talk about this in the gospel. And what this is, is that Jesus, when his work was finished, he went back to the Father. Do you know who he left in charge? The church. If we leave this part of the gospel, we miss that the church is meant to be the primary conduit for Jesus and the gospel in the broken world that we live in today. And we have this tendency to live in a truncated view of the gospel. And when we see the gospel as the death, the burial, and the resurrection, it places me firmly over here, nice and safe and sound. But what we miss is that at the very beginning of the story and at the very end of the story is about mission. This idea of not only embracing the gospel, but living it out. It's a very important reality as we think through this. And so when we read verses one through nine and we leave out 10, we miss the mission of the gospel. Look at this in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want you to notice that at the beginning in verse 1 is the word walk, and at the end of verse 10 is the word walk, and it brackets this whole passage. And what Paul does in this way brilliantly is he starts by saying, your life mission before Jesus was to live your life and to walk however you want to. But as a result of the gospel, there's a new walking. It's a new life, and it's a life where we walk with purpose. 
It's where we do good works for the benefit of other people, right? And it takes into every single piece of my life, how I spend my money, what kind of movies I watch, how I treat my neighbors, how hard I work, right? And all the gaps that fill in the the pieces of our normal day, right? How we drive our cars, how we eat our meals, how we parent, how we treat anybody in any given moment, I was reading uh, or listening to a guy this week um, whose name is Dave Rhodes, and he says this, and this is interesting. He says, he says, if the church's primary focus is worship, then what the church will end up doing is just creating worship services. Because all we're going to do is just come to church, come to church, come to church, come to church. But he said, if the mission, he says, if the primary focus of the church is mission in the same way that God's was, guess what? You'll end up creating worshipers. Because then Sunday to Saturday, I live my life. Everything I do is an act of worship because I'm living on mission in the same way that Jesus did. I'm living in the full gospel, not in a truncated gospel. We're created for good works. And so let me reframe this for you here for a second. As we end up, as we begin to wrap all of this up, let me reframe this for you. I heard this this week. This is powerful. Um, The moment that a generation assumes the gospel, the next generation will lose it. So think about it this way. Rethink. However you process the gospel, whether a truncated view or full way, whatever way you view it, whatever way you live it out, that's the gospel that you're modeling for the next generation to multiply. So here's my question. Is it truncated or is it full? Is it conformed to the mission, to the life, and to the ascension of Jesus who left his church to do what he calls us to do? Guys, what the world expects is a gospel that's great, that is so good that it far exceeds our expectations, their expectations. Do you know how long it will take if we just keep plugging pennies? Cha-chink, cha-chink, cha-chink. And the reason why we oftentimes give other people the penny version of the gospel is because it's the penny version that I give myself. I want to invite the worship team to come on up. And while they're doing this, uh, I want to give you two challenges. And the first one is this. I challenge you sometime this week to go home and write your story. Write out your gospel story. Who was I before Christ? What is the gospel? If I can articulate it as clearly as possible. It doesn't need to be perfect, but write it out. You should be able to share the gospel as part of your story. And then who am I after Christ? What are my current struggles, but what's the joy in my life, right? Because your story is powerful, is so tremendously powerful. And the last thing I'll challenge you is this, is that every single morning, make this your rhythm, whether it's your cave time or if it's soon as you open your eyes, reteach yourself the gospel. Remind yourself, it's not about me, it's not about my works, it's about grace through faith. It's about his mission, not mine. Let's pray. Father, Lord, as we uh, are wrapping up our time this morning, we move into this time of communion. I ask, uh, Lord, that you... um, that you be speaking to our hearts. If there's anybody here who has never even, uh, maybe never heard the gospel or never, it's never really clicked until now that Jesus died for my sins, that offers forgiveness of sins and eternal life, Lord, I pray that you would stir that in our hearts. And I also know that there are people in this room that need to be reminded of the gospel right now, that maybe we've been assuming something about it, we've been living in a truncated version and we have this need to shift uh, into a full version of the gospel in our lives. 
and it's also true for all of us, myself included, that we all have people in our lives that are walking confidently in circles, who are walking in the bleak, dark blackness that are waiting for someone to share the good news. And so this morning, Lord, I just pray that you would just dive this so deep inside of us that we would be reminded of our story and that we would be overjoyed with the goodness of God who showed up in our lives though we were dead in our trespasses and sins and made us a part of his family. Amen.